Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Input 2. It is a new season, so welcome back, and thank you for listening prior if you were. I really appreciate it. I am your host, Emily Rubin, and today I have a very special guest who's actually been on here before, so he might not be that special, but I like him anyway. Who are you? So I'm Jeremy Rogers, Bytes News Editor and frequent guest on Input 2. Yes, you sure do have a lot to say, don't you, Jeremy? Some For some reason. <laughs> and I appreciate it. So today, I wanted to talk about one of my favorite films of all time, Little Miss Sunshine with Steve Carell, which I think is honestly just the best thing ever. <laughs> okay, sure. you can't tell, but Jeremy's looking at me because he does not like this movie, and I do. So, you know, we might have to, like, throw some hands in the podcast room, but that's okay because that's what film criticism is all about. Throwing hands. (laughs) Very true. So before we kind of delve into the film, we need to talk a little about one of the genres that the film can be described as, and that is a black comedy. So a black comedy is also known as a dark comedy, and the gist of it is just that, like, you have these subjects like, I don't know, dysfunctional families that we don't really like to talk about because that's like it's like dirty laundry we don't really want to criticize like we don't want to we want happy movies we want we want to ignore societal problems but a dark comedy looks at these controversial subjects and analyzes them by using comedy it kind of masks like the real social commentary through comedy uh usually death is the biggest taboo subject that's covered Uh, But other things, anything political or social can be commented on. Yeah, so have you, I mean, Jeremy, you've seen a few, like, just give an example. So my favorite black comedy of all time has to be uh, Dr. Strangelove. That's probably the biggest and best example of a dark comedy. I think most people have seen it. And it's really easy to identify because, you know, it's about the war and death. And we're just like, that's kind of funny. (laughs) A Nazi, you know, it's, it's... Got everything you could want in a dark comedy, all the taboo subjects. So basically everything in a dark comedy has a deeper meaning. It's not just like point and laugh and there's nothing deeper to it. It's going head on, analyzing it, using comedy to do so. So Little Miss Sunshine actually falls into a dark comedy and that's why I brought it up. I want to make sure everyone's clear on the genre that Little Miss Sunshine falls under. So let's kind of delve into the movie a little bit. Do we have to? Yes, we do, Jeremy. I love this movie, so please escort yourself out of the studio immediately. Finally. (laughs) (laughs) So the screenplay was written by Michael Arndt. And what's really impressive about Arndt is that when he was writing this film, he only did it in three days. Of course, that was a rough draft, but three days. And this was his first screenplay. Come on, you even have to admit, that is insane. That is impressive. Yeah, and well, and Arndt is really, it's his career is so interesting because he has gone on to become a writer for Star Wars The Force Awakens. I know that's controversial, but it's still a big name movie that he's been involved in. Uh, he did the screenplay for Toy Story 3, which is a huge accomplishment. Yeah, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot to rewrite Toy Story 2. To be fair, they, he didn't write the story, he wrote the screenplay. Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) So just to be fair. I mean, with all due respect. (laughs) Yeah, we're kind of trashing on Toy Story 3, but we'll get into that another day. (laughs) And also notably, he did um, The Hunger Games Catching Fire along with Simon Beaufoy. So he has he's been taking on big names after this. This movie really helped propel his career. And I think that's really cool, Jeremy. It is. It's very cool. 
what is also really interesting about this movie is that the directors, because it was co-directed, were also first time, at least on a big scale. It was a husband and wife team, Jonathan Dayton and his wife, Valerie Ferris. So before, they really have only done like short little videos or like mostly music video related things. But now, obviously, they have this. This is their first big film and it took off amazingly well. Uh, Critically, it did amazing. So just to jump right in and make this really big film and an independent film at that, I, I cannot express enough how impressed I am with them. I did notice they haven't really done another big movie since then. Uh, the biggest one is Battle of the Sexes, which also features Steve Carell and also features Emma Stone. So they're still directing, so good for them. Basically, this was made by a team of beginners and... I think we underestimate how hard it really is to make a movie, how hard it is to write a movie, to just get it off its feet and get it noticed. And they did this. It seemed like looking at it, you don't you wouldn't think this is a beginner project. So they did exceptionally well. So Little Miss Sunshine released on January 20th in 2006 at the Sundance Film Festival and was an immediate hit. And I really do mean immediate. Um, Right after. Well, shortly after uh, it previewed and people were talking about it hollywood um the hollywood reporter states that fox searchlight purchased uh the film for over 10 million dollars and that makes it the most expensive purchase ever at sundance by a studio so this is like a big deal film like from the get-go out of like film festival they were like this is going to be a big deal so good for them let's talk just just a little, we'll get into the plot a little more heavily, but the film basically features a dysfunctional family from Albuquerque, and they're all very different from each other. Uh, they all have very different problems, personalities, and they don't really jive very well. It's dysfunctional. Uh, all of the little girl, she wants to enter a little beauty pageant, but it's in California. So as you do, you take the family takes a trip on a janky Volkswagen to California, and hijinks ensue. So it's it's a black comedy, but it's also like a a drive comedy, like a car comedy, like you know people stuck in the vehicle and hijinks happen. Yeah, it's fun. Sure, <laughs> it's charming. It's very charming, and you know what? I'm not the only one that thinks so because this this movie has won so many awards that it's kind of overwhelming. So it was nominated for four awards at the 79th Academy Awards. Michael Arndt received Best Original Screenplay and Alan Arkin won Best Supporting Actor. At AFI, it was named Movie of the Year, which is a huge deal. Uh, The BAFTA Awards, it was nominated for six awards and won two for Best Screenplay and Best Supporting Role. The Duville Film Festival awarded it Grand Special Prize. Palm Springs International Film Festival awarded it the Chairman's Vanguard Award. And that's only some of them. Like, there have been other awards for, like, MTV nominations everywhere. It was also nominated for five awards and won four for Best Feature, Best Director, Best First Screenplay, and Best Supporting Male at the Independent Spirit Awards. Kind of impressive. Yeah, you got to admit, you got to hand it to them. That's a lot. And in regards to the box office, the opening weekend, it received $370,782. That's pretty good. It's not the best. For an independent film. Okay. All right. For an indie film. Yeah. For an indie film. That's really good. And then overall, $59,831,476. And it was the number, like, it was in the top 10 for about seven weeks. So that's, that's decent. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's decent. Again, you have to keep in mind this is an independent project from first-time directors and writers. This yeah, is no, not... this is a that's huge for them. Exactly, and it's even better that the critical reception was stellar. Looking at Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 91% critic rating and a 91 audience score. I guess everyone just kind of universally agrees, Jeremy. Wow. So humbled, I feel, right now. You should be. So on the positive side, I want to look at some quotes that people have said about the movie. We're going to look at J.R. Jones from the Chicago Reader. He said... This isn't much more than a glorified sitcom, but it deftly dramatizes our conflicting desires for individuality and an audience to applaud it. And I wanted to point this out because um, it kind of highlights an issue with the film that a lot of people have, and that's that it's formulaic. He used the word sitcom, and it is. Uh, a lot of the characters are fairly cookie cutter. And, a lot? You know, Jeremy, but what makes the film are the performances and the originality of their journey. So thank you. Not the journey itself, the fact that it's an entire genre of people in their car going places. And Rapes of wrath, you know, you know all that John know, Jeremy, Steinbeck stuff. Gosh, okay. I just can't please this man. I give up. But we're going to go to negative because that will make Jeremy feel better. <laughs> so we're going to look at Melissa Anderson with Time Out. And Melissa says... Ooh, can I read this one? Go for it. All right. All indie movie families may start out unhappy in their own way, but by the time the final credits roll, everyone remains complacent, confident in their brood superiority. So they missed the point. <laughs> I, I hate to say that. Uh, and we're going to talk about like themes a little bit later. But again, ju- I, I feel like people miss if just because something's a trope doesn't mean it's bad. <laughs> you can still make an interesting story. But right, you just have to connect one trope to another trope and then to another trope, right? Because, uh, I mean, a, if we're talking about Little Miss Sunshine, right? You're a hateful person. I you're very, very much am, but I do agree that she does, it does seem like they really miss the point. Well, it, the point isn't them about changing. No, it is not, and we'll, ladies and gents. It is not about people changing. <laughs> so I, I just don't, I disagree, but there are definitely negative points out there to be made about the film. So let's jump right into it. Let's talk about this beautiful Jeremy film. And you know what? Why don't you start? Why don't you tell us about the film since you feel so passionately? All right. So it starts out with a dysfunctional family. The mom's main defining character trait is that she's stressed. That's pretty much it. And pretty kind of dissatisfied with her husband's career because he's a loser. Uh, loser husband, <laughs> dissatisfied wife, uh, angsty teen son who hates everybody, uh, innocent little girl, and the foul-mouthed grandpa. And we get, you know, uh, Steve Carell's character, who's just kind of here. He's depressed. That's it. They all go on an adventure together, and whatever, just by that basic description, they go cross-country on a road trip. Think of all of the changes that might happen to these characters, what personal growth they might achieve, and how that movie might end. Congratulations, you've just thought of exactly how this movie ends. Wow. So, (laughs) that's the movie, but basically, I'm just going to fill in a few of the gaps here, because Jeremy's trying to be snarky and left some out. All of the little girl, she is infatuated with... 
women in beauty pageants. She wants to be them. She loves that life, and she she thinks she does anyway. She doesn't really know all of the controversy surrounding it. She just sees, you know, these really beautiful women, like, on screen, and she idolizes them, just like any girl would. And they find out that Olive, because another girl dropped out of this competition, she is now eligible to be in the Little Miss Sunshine pageant. Now, I will say, she did not willingly drop out. She was disqualified because she used diet pills. Yes. The film is very obviously trying to say something, and that's important. But Olive is the central focus of this film, even when it's not so much about, you know, She's not really speaking very often or doing anything, but she is the thread that holds this family together. And so every event that happens in the film, it's basically with the end goal of the family coming together to get her to this pageant so she can compete. Right. Even when Olive isn't a main part of a scene that's going on, like when they're traveling in the car and talking, she's got her headphones on and she's listening to a CD of her routine music so she can play things over again. So... Even when Olive isn't a part of what's going on, that is the folk that is a part of the focus of the film is this is what is in Olive's life and this is what is specifically almost purposefully being hidden from her. And another going off of that, the one, an important thing about Olive is that she is basically innocence encapsulated. Uh, not only is she just kind of oblivious to every terrible thing that happens, it's it's just kind of like she doesn't really register the gravity of a lot of it. Yeah. Um, oftentimes other characters will be like, they'll be reacting to it and they'll use Olive like in ways like someone will write a note and be like, hey, go hug mom. She's having a hard time and she'll do it. Like she just, she's a little girl. She's completely innocent in this dysfunctional family. Everybody's fighting and she's just there doing her best. We're excited for this pageant. Right. If this were any other director, Olive would constantly be holding a single red balloon just to symbolize how innocent she Ugh, is. I might do an entire episode about red balloons and why they make me just livid every time I see a character holding them. It's like, gosh, can you be more blatant with symbolism, but they didn't do that, Jeremy. Right, right. <laughs> they didn't do that. They restrained themselves. Well, I don't barely. really... <laughs> I don't know if this is a stop and get a balloon situation at all, but I... I could see them working it in at one specific point. And what point is that? Uh, it's uh, when all the drama happens with the grandpa on the journey. Yes. So getting into that, let's talk about some of the conflicts that arise while their journey starts. Let's start with grandpa, because grandpa is very crucial to Olive's character. He's obviously this very, like, tough, like, kind of grimy old man. Like, he's doing heroin. He's he's very rude to the rest of his family. Like He's, he's just... played by Alan Arkin, and he does his best to be this cantankerous guy who loves his granddaughter. Yes, his, his soft spot is very clearly for Olive. And Olive is just, again, innocent. She doesn't see her grandpa in this negative light. He's just this really cool dude that's helping her train for this beauty contest. So the entire time, we have the grandfather kind of guiding Olive, and he even sticks up for her in a lot of points. Um, the dad is specifically is kind of a jerk, even if unintentionally, to Olive. Uh, constantly he says, like, uh, you know, losers are the worst. There are two types of people <laughs> in this world. There are winners and losers. Are you a winner? Are you going to be a loser? And so the fear of losing literally drives this girl to tears. And her grandfather is there saying, 
no, you're a winner for even trying. So it's not really her father figure that's giving her the support, at least for the, at the beginning of the film. Right. It is her grandfather. And so the worst thing that can possibly happen to Olive is that he dies. He dies from an overdose on their journey. An overdose of what, Emily? An overdose of heroin. Cocaine. That he was snorting. All right. Yeah. They did make that obvious, yeah. So (laughs) that happened. And so they can't just, like, stop because they won't make it to the beauty pageant. And by this point, like, everything else has gone wrong. So they're like, we have to go. We have to make this for Olive. (laughs) So they put him the body. They steal the body from the hospital and put it in their car. (laughs) And they transport the dead body across state lines, which is not allowed without a particular permit. It's just very ridiculous and kind of terrible. So that happens. Uh, Dwayne, the son, uh, his entire thing is that he wants to be a pilot. Like, he takes this so seriously that for the past nine months, he has taken a vow of silence. He writes everything down he needs to say. So on the way, he has all of, like, putting up the cards for the colorblind test. And they realize he can't read them. He's colorblind, so he can't be a pilot. So his entire nine-month vow of silence was for nothing. Right, and this is the edgy, angsty teen who reads Nietzsche, has a painting of him on his of Nietzsche on his wall, wears shirts that says like Jesus was wrong. Yeah, he's dyes his hair black. Look, we've all had that phase. I had that phase. I don't know about you, but <laughs> I I wasn't so much in a thus spake Zarathustra phase. No, but know. we I feel as teenagers we all thought we were smarter than we were, so. <laughs> You don't still feel that way? <laughs> no, I don't, Jeremy. <laughs> oh, well then. <clears throat> so that's Dwayne's conflict. Richard, the father, his entire thing is he wants to be a motivational speaker. He wants to, you know, he's trying to start a business based off of that. And it's obviously not going well from the get-go. Like, no. there's no money coming in. They don't really have money for this trip even. They couldn't take a plane. So... He ends up not getting the contract for his business. And that just causes a whole lot of pressure in the family. Like, the kids can hear their parents fighting through hotel rooms. It's not good. And then Frank, the uncle, from the get-go, he's had just an ordeal. Um, He's living with the family, with his sister, because he had attempted suicide. Well, <laughs> he runs into his ex-boyfriend on the trip who had left him for his arch rival. He's a Proust scholar, he's a writer, and he was the best at what he did. He's the foremost Proust scholar in the United States, and his boyfriend left him for the second best Proust scholar in the United States. Who becomes the first while they're on the trip. So it's just not going well for anybody. <laughs> um, but again, these conflicts are more... Of happening around Olive. And what they kind of do is they just kind of deal with everything by dealing with Olive in a positive way. (laughs) They kind of just set aside their bigger issues and kind of focus on this little girl who completely depends on them and who's obviously just being disappointed left and right by everybody. So it's, it's a sad series of events, but it's also uplifting in a lot of different ways. So eventually they get to the pageant where Olive competes. And this is, the pageant is definitely my favorite part of the film because as soon as Easily. they walk, as soon as they walk in that door, you see these little girls dressed in like these not entirely appropriate outfits for little girls and just made up completely to look like beauty queens. And they like they're obviously trying to make them look like 18 when they're like 
eight. It's just very unsettling. But the way the characters react to it is just so funny. They are obviously very uncomfortable with it. Okay. Throughout the entire beauty pageant performance, uh, the dad, played by Greg Kinnear, who, fun fact, was actually born in Logansport, Indiana. Hey, shout out. Yeah, man. Who's your pride, man? Right on. Uh, But he has, he gives probably my absolute favorite performance of the film. (laughs) Just watching the other contestants. It just shows him looking on in abject horror at what's going on (laughs) on the stage while everyone around him is just cheering. He 100% is channeling my inner emotions when I watch this. It is the most horrific thing. And he's just kind of witnessing it all firsthand. Like these girls are like contorting their bodies in like crazy ways. Like these are like... 10% 10% effort into like just, just a little beauty pageant in like a little convention center and these girls are like doing backflips and these crazy twirls and he's just sitting there like he doesn't know how to react and it's so it's so funny but it's also another it highlights again Olive's innocence in the situation she just isn't a beauty queen she isn't meant for this life and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way she is not <laughs> she's not able to do backflips and contort her body and just all this crazy stuff. She doesn't have these extravagant outfits. She's just a normal little girl. And she's competing with these little girls and the rest of her family come to the realization that like she's going to be humiliated. And again, they all rally around her and ultimately it comes down to Olive's choice. And she says she wants to go on. She's going to go do it. And she makes the performance in memory of her grandfather, and she puts on the best performance I have ever seen for for a beauty show. I guess I don't have much, you know, experience in that area, but D- none, none whatsoever. So yeah, by default, best <laughs> performance. Let's Jeremy tell me about her performance a little bit. All right. So up to now, we had seen girls uh, doing gymnastics. We've seen yodeling. <laughs> We've forgot. seen uh, other sorts of singing. Olive gets on stage and we hear Super Freak come on (laughs) and she starts, uh, well, you can tell who choreographed her routine. It was her horny grandfather who (laughs) over the course of the uh, journey at one point tells the uncle, played by Steve Carell, to go buy him a couple of porno magazines. So... (laughs) Yeah, throughout the routine, Olive rips off her top, has tearaway pants. She's fully clothed. Yes, fully clothed. Just be sure. Yeah, but it's still that aesthetic that she goes through. Definitely not like, definitely not a dance routine inspired by ballet. (laughs) I, I would say not, no. No. And everybody in the pageant is horrified by this uh immediately they're like get her off the stage and so her family is like they rally around her and they're like no my daughter's gonna perform so they go out there and they perform with her and it is just it's so funny to see just these this group of men pelvic thrusting in the background while while olive is just twirling around on stage and a bunch of like mothers of like these pageant contestants are just looking on in complete disbelief like they've ruined the sanctity and purity i say with quotes of their precious innocent quote festival festival yeah it's a festival it's like a it's a horror show (laughs) yeah yeah but the pageant is actually very important in terms of theme because when we look at a black comedy, 
they tackle taboo and controversial subjects in a humorous light. And that's exactly what this film does. And one of the ways they do this is commenting on the concept of winning and losing with using the pageant as a catalyst. So Michael Arndt had read about Arnold Schwarzenegger speaking to a group of high school students, and he actually told these students, if there's one thing in this world I hate, it's losers. I despise them. And Arndt, after he read that, he didn't like it very much. He didn't like the message that that conveyed. He said, I thought there was something so wrong with that attitude. I wanted to attack that idea that in life you're going up or you're going down. So to a degree, a child beauty pageant is the epitome of the ultimate stupid, meaningless competition people put themselves through. And I think he achieved that in this film. Yeah, I'd say that the theming around that was really well played out. Uh, It was well implemented, a lot of good intentionality. They didn't really, it wasn't like an attack on anyone in particular. The main villain of the pageant is the snooty lady judge. None of the participants or the parents are maligned. It's just kind of like attacked as an institution. Exactly. And also what's interesting is that the directors specifically address this and they said their intent is certainly not to make these people look bad. And I'll get into this a little more, but um, they prepared everybody in the room about what the script was and what they were trying to convey in the film. So there is no ill intent here. So essentially every girl that you see in the pageant is an actual pageant competitor. Did you know that? I did not know that going into the film, but it does make a lot of sense. (laughs) So in an interview with Ken Voiner with eFilmCritic.com, with the film director's Valerie Ferris and her husband, Jonathan. His name is Jonathan. (laughs) Jonathan Dayton. Thank you. Jonathan Dayton. (laughs) Jonathan Dayton, everybody. Uh so in an interview with Ken Voiner with eFilm Critic and the film directors Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, Valerie mentioned that initially they weren't actually interested in adapting Arden's script. They didn't want to delve into the world of beauty pageants. But then they actually read the script and they realized that the pageant isn't exactly the main focus. It's, the, it's representative of the whole world and the way we allow ourselves to be judged and how wrong that is. And what the story really expresses is that no one should be judged or do anything for someone else's approval. In that same interview, that is where Jonathan Dayton confirms that these are real pageant kids. It's, so, yeah, every, all of those routines were their actual real routines in real life. Which, I mean, some of them were really impressive. I keep like, going back to the girl that contorts her body, but... Yeah, the gymnast girl. I honestly, like, someone needs to tell her this is not the field for her. She needs to be a gymnast because, oh, my gosh, or a dancer. I was I was floored. It's horrifying. And knowing that that's not, like, an actor makes me a little more horrified, but in an impressed way. Right, yeah. like in a the existential horror of being, like... A person can do that? <laughs> what have I done with that time? And you commented on this a little bit before, but... And we, I commented on it, too, but Valerie made it very clear that their intent is not to make these girls look bad. They are children, you know. She said, I don't really approve of it, but they were talented. They could sing, they could dance, or they were gymnasts. So we weren't really trying to make them look bad. We tried to present it like it's a little bit of a talent show, a little bit of a costume ball. 
It is what it is. So I think they do a really good job. I think they make, the for me, the best part, the best criticisms that can be made are just neutrally showcasing something. And honestly, they did. They just went into the room. They did. The, they showed the real performances and we make of it what we will. Obviously, we have the actor's reaction to go off of. Um, but I think they pretty much reflect the mainstream feeling towards beauty pageants. A lot of the different mainstream feelings, yeah. I mean, uh, the older brother and the uncle, they're both just like chilling outside of the hotel where the pageant is happening. And at this point, the brother's still trying to get over the fact that he can't be a pilot. And, of course, he gets a pep talk from the uncle about Proust and how he was a loser his entire life. And he thought, looking back on his deathbed, thought that the years where he hated everything and was struggling were the best years of his life. And that makes the brother feel better about hating everything and everybody around him. And so they decide to go back and try to keep Olive from being judged. I think it's a very heartwarming moment, too, Um, even just in terms of, like, the plot and how we've traveled with these characters. They've all gone through so much, like, just craziness that for them to, like, willingly go up and just kind of make a joke out of everything, it just, I feel that it's a perfect climactic resolution to everything. I mean... I won't say it doesn't have some sort of, you know, it's very thematically appropriate, but I, I'm i not that huge on the movie just because it's kind of cliched how the only person that's right in all of this is Olive because she's the only one who doesn't appear to really care that much what other people think of her. Because the dad, looking at all the other performances, doesn't want his daughter to go on because he thinks, oh, she's going to get blown out of the water. I don't want her to compete and make an embarrassment of herself. Uh, The brother and uncle come up and they say, these people shouldn't judge her. No one should judge you. Don't get out there on that stage. Don't put yourself out there. You know, this is just a terrible thing to put someone through. Don't do it. And then the mom just kind of... I don't know. Does does the mom have a reason why she doesn't want her daughter to go on, or is it just the what? peer pressure she, of everyone else? Well, her the mother says that she should go on. The mother says it should be Olive's choice. Yeah. Well, the, when they first talk to the mother, she says, what are you guys talking about? We've come all this way. She'd be devastated. We have to do this for Olive. And she makes, she lets Olive have her choice. Right. And I think that's very important because the theme of winning and losing and what is a winner and what is a loser is perfectly encapsulated in the scene leading up to all of deciding, should I go on? Um, you know, her father previously had said like, you know, he, he, if even if unintentional, he's implying that if she doesn't go out and actually win, she's losing. She's a disappointment. Her grandfather put in the idea in her head that that's not the case. You have to try. And so we see this moment where the conflicting ideologies of her grandfather and her father start to actually come to a head and she has to choose between one. And ultimately she chooses that it's not about winning. It's just kind of doing your own thing and being happy with it. And it really doesn't matter how people judge you. That's not the point. The point is going out and doing your best. And that's... Which is a fantastic message. And I think they do it well, personally. No, yeah, they do the messaging well. I like the commentary. My primary problem with the film is just 
I did not like how formulaic it was. I didn't like the character development particularly much. I just found it to be very simplistic. Well, it is. In all of those terms to the point where from the first 10 minutes of the first time I saw this film, I was able to predict exactly what happened. And I think that's a valid point. I mean, that it, it definitely, you, if you're going into this film going, I want some twists and turns along the way. I want convention breaking. That's not this film. No. This is based on tropes and genre convention. But for me personally, and again, I feel that, you know, that's completely valid reason not to enjoy the film. But sometimes I just don't need convention breaking. I just want to see somebody to have their own take at a genre. And for me, what makes this is the performances and the themes. Those are not, these are themes that aren't usually discussed very often in these types of movies. Right. On on subsequent, the first time I watched it, I really didn't like the film. But on subsequent watches, I've grown, it's grown on me. You know, I like the theming. I like the commentary. I was able to appreciate some of the performances more. But I still agree with the positive review that we read earlier that this is pretty much like a sitcom. Yeah. In terms of performances. Absolutely. I mean, Steve Carell's in it. (laughs) It's so cheesy and over the top and exaggerated. These people are more like caricatures than actual people. Yep, they are. And I can understand how that can turn people off. So I think that's fair. But I do want to talk about another theme because the second review, the negative review that I highlighted, they talked about the ending being not to their liking because, quote, the family was confident of their brood superiority. And I had said that, you know, I think they missed the point. And here's where I exactly. want. Yeah, this is where I want to highlight that. Another theme that this delves into um, is the dysfunctional family. And this is a perfect example of the black comedy because usually in our in American society, we place great importance on the family structure. The nuclear family structure is supposed to have this traditional American, like, perfection. And that's obviously not realistic, but we like to pretend that it is. That's why we have so many sitcoms that are so overwhelmingly positive, perfect husband, perfect wife, and it's kind of sickeningly sweet. But it's escapism. It's what a lot of people not only want to believe the real world is like, but what we want our own families to be like. Or at least if we don't have those families, maybe we can latch onto these and kind of escape for a few minutes. In this black comedy film, they don't hide anything. They, this, all of this family's dirty laundry is right there, and it is in your face the entire film. Yeah. And what I feel that this reviewer misses is that a dysfunctional family cannot be fixed in a few days. It would be insane to think that these characters who have on screen just been a mess this entire time and the implications of how long this has been going on indicate that this is a huge issue that just is it's not going to be changed uh, at least not in any short period of time right i i particularly take umbrage with the last bit of the review you know it says by the time the final credits roll everyone remains complacent confident in their brood superiority but these people have no superiority complex when it comes to their own family no. the entire point of the movie is to say Look at my broken, weird, gross family. Look at all the everything that's wrong with them. You know what? I still like them because of that. 
it's not that we're better than anyone. It's that I just learned to love my family regardless of whether or not they are better or not. And that is supported completely. I mean, when they leave, earlier in the film, their car horn breaks. They're literally driving on the highway with their horn just blazing and they can't do anything about it. The doors are broken on this van. They have to fix it. It is a janky van. And to get to this contest on time, they have to go over like the uh, the caution or like the little ledges that like... You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, they have to go over uh, curbs. They yeah, have thank to you. jump curbs. They have to break through like the arm of a ticket booth <laughs> to get into a parking lot. It's, they actually do that twice. It's not... These are people that are fully aware that they are not exactly normal. And it's not that they're saying that like we're better than everybody else. They're saying that like this is who we are. And... They just, at the end of the film, that horn is still blazing. It's not that, it's not blazing and they didn't get it fixed because, you know, they want to blend in and they're not keeping it broken so they can stand out and claim some superiority like we're better than you because we're different. They're do it's like that because that's just who they are. That's their situation. They can't really afford to fix it right now. Right. And the other part of that is that by the time the final credits roll, everyone remains complacent. No. That's no. just their life. Everyone becomes happy. The whole point of the film is that no one is really happy with their circumstances. And by the end, they all learn to coexist and to find, you know, comfort in family and in each other and in their support of each other. So that's the very first time we ever see them complacent. The only what I think they mean, like, I'm not sure what they mean exactly by complacent, even when they say that what the way I interpreted it and I don't agree with is that you know, they're okay with everything happening, and they are. I mean, that's their life. But I, they mean that in, like, a negative way. Like, are they supposed to just cry the entire way home? Like, they've had this major series of events, and they've had this kind of burst of, like, good energy that's just happened. So, of course, they're going to, like, ride off. <laughs> you do know what I'm saying? Like, it just seems kind of strange. Arnold, if you wrote this review, you can tell us. It's okay that they didn't win. It's okay. Because, you know, his whole thing was that he... <laughs> his whole thing was that, you know, losers are terrible and these people are losers and they're okay with being losers. And so by the end... I was so confused. I was like, who's Arnold? I didn't Schwarzenegger. Re- I, I, think, I think you need to clarify that. I was like, who are you talking about? I, the only Arnold went, who's been in any I, of this conversation. I really did... My mind went to Arnold from the Magic School Bus. <laughs> I really couldn't. I could not fathom what you were talking about. But right, right. Because the the bu- the van that they took is really just I mean, the Magic School Bus. The mom was Miss Frizzle. Yeah, it's a downgrade. I'm just I'm just saying. <laughs> Either sure. way, complacent is not the correct word for this movie. Um, Neither is Arnold from the Magic School Bus. You know, Jeremy, leave it. <laughs> um, also, it's just a dysfunctional family can't be fixed. Like, I don't know what you're expecting major growth from these characters. They're all obviously going through a lot. Uh, they have serious problems and familial issues that need to be worked out, but that can't happen overnight. So I don't know what... I just disagree firmly with that review. But these are the major themes. Dysfunctional family and being okay with not exactly winning and just being okay with who you are. And again, a lot of this is black comedy at its greatest. You know, again, even in society, we're like, 
you have to be a winner, especially in American society. There's a huge importance on just taking out the competition and just beating everybody out. But sometimes we need to laugh and just be like, it's okay. It's okay to not be the best. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to have the more dysfunctional family than someone else. You have to be okay with that. But you should try your best. <laughs> just want to throw try it to out have there. the most dysfunctional family. No, out don't. There. No, 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 no. Yes. <laughs> no. Just try your best. You to heard it not here. be dysfunctional. Anyway, we're going to move on to cinematography because I am dying to talk about the opening shot of the film. Let's do it. I'm going to get real nerdy on you. All right, let's go for it. All right, here we go. So the opening shot of any movie is incredibly important to the rest of the film. <laughs> it is. It. It sets the framework for the tone, the characters, and just the general situation and themes that are going to be covered in the film. And that is the case with this movie. So we start the film with an extreme close-up of Olive's face. And we can see in her glasses reflected a beauty pageant that she's watching on the television. We hear on the TV an announcer pronounce that Miss Louisiana is the winner of the beauty pageant. And that's the person that is very clearly the focus for Olive, she is looking at her and idolizing her. So by showing this through Olive's glasses, literally her eyes, the scene tells us everything that we need to know about the film. The film is partially focused on the superficial. Olive looks up to these women and, and she wants to be like them. And the film has a major focus on themes and achieving them, or more accurately, winning and losing as a main theme. And I'd like to say that in this very first shot, it's not just that we see these women reflected in Olive's glasses. The camera is pitched slightly lower than Olive, and it's looking up at her, yes. which is usually a signifier that the person being shown has power. They have status. So what we figure out from this shot is that Olive is deriving her own personal empowerment from watching these women. It's not just that I feel like I want to be like them, but seeing that these women are achieving this actually helps me as a person. And that is really important to the film because for Olive, we don't she doesn't see these pageants as, you know, sexist or problematic or exploitative or anything. She's just a little girl that sees them as fun. And the film while it's criticizing the environment of these pageants and everything, it isn't criticizing girls as individuals who look up to these women. Not at all. And I think that is a very important point that needs to be made. And they do that in a matter of seconds without having to explicitly state it. They make sure from the get-go this is not a malicious film at all, but it's going to criticize. So Right. They have Miss California at the pageant as a guest judge. And earlier in the film, the dad tells Olive that she shouldn't be eating ice cream because ice cream makes her fat and fat girls don't win pageants. And Olive goes up to get a signature, an autograph from Miss California. And she goes, do you like ice cream? And she just goes, I love ice cream. Every time. That is just the sweetest little thing. Show her. I'm going to set this. I'm going to set the scene for everybody. She's looking at this girl. You know, she's a little nervous because she's like, do you like ice cream? You know, she's just been told that will make you fat and she shouldn't like this thing that she loves. And this this woman who's a beauty queen, she's beautiful. She's she's prominent figure in the world Olive wants to be included in. Looks at her, smiles and says she loves ice cream. And she even tells her her favorite flavor. And that. Olive's face just brightens up and it just lets her know that she doesn't have to meet 
superficial standard. She can just be herself and have her interests on top of that. Right. You don't have to give up what you love in order to do what you want to do. I think it's beautiful. No, that's a (laughs) fantastic... That's a beautiful thing. I think that once we get to the actual hotel and the pageant is where the film really picks up. I agree. That's where it jumps for me from like a 4 out of 10 to like a 6 or a 7 out of 10. All right. I can see that. Regarding cinematography, are there any other standout moments or just the aesthetic of the film in general that, you know, you like or dislike? I can't say there's much that I really love or really hate about this film. A lot of it doesn't like the cinematography doesn't go out of its way to call attention to itself. Mm-hmm. It seems very it's very simple in that way, in the way that like it's not trying to, you know, do a lot. Not to say that cinematography in and of itself is simple, but I mean like there well, are some really effects. Right. But like the most effective part where the cinematography really helps is during the pageant when we're looking at the father. For me, it's the best comedic point. It says the most about what the world they're in is. I think another fantastic part of the film is the uh, set design and the props. Yep. Because especially while we're in the family's home, we... Like, I get so many vibes of like, oh, my goodness, this is me and my dysfunctional family growing up. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Here's the house that is like decorated. It was built in the 70s, most likely. But we see some modern accoutrements all over. They're having dinner and they're putting out, you know, plastic cups that I'm like, oh, my goodness, that looks exactly like the Beauty and the Beast cups that I got from Burger King (laughs) back in like the late 90s that we still have in our cabinet. Regarding their home, I also want to point out that the placement of characters in that scene when they're all sitting around the table is crucial. Um, It's purposeful. The way they have that room set up, it's to make the open environment. Uh, A lot of the scenes are purposely constructed to fit all of the family members into the frame. Uh, And that, that means a lot of long shots and like angles that can show large amounts of space. And that is it can be a difficult thing to achieve because fitting a bunch of people into a screen in an appealing way is not exactly easy especially if you're trying to like put the focus on a particular person and i feel that they did achieve this um usually it everything feels natural um when everybody needs to be in the frame they're in the frame they know where to put people and what to have them doing if they are the main focus of the scene so that they are and they don't get overshadowed by somebody else. But everything feels natural. It doesn't necessarily feel staged unless you're looking for it. Right. There's a lot of good blocking in this film and of coordinating where everyone needs to be to make sure that the shot is the most effective. These are things that really go overlooked by a lot of moviegoers. When you think of cinematography and just the overall aesthetics of everything blocking, is so precise and it needs to be precise to get the achieved shot. <laughs> you can't really get your perfect angle or perfect, you know, rule of third shot if you don't have people where they need to be. <laughs> and it sounds very simple, but if you do this wrong, it can mess up everything. Absolutely. Imagine if they were all just like huddled together in a little like, you know. Right. Like if you had the older brother standing in front of Olive so you couldn't see her. You have Steve Carell just off somewhere. I'm thinking like if they all try to fit them into a like tight shot. So they're all like 
shoulder to shoulder and like it's just really awkward <laughs> yeah no like leave the leave that kind of stuff to like wes anderson or someone who's going to make that like really intentional yeah so they do a really good job i feel of the overall aesthetic it definitely is simple but that's the point this is not the story is of a dysfunction dysfunctional family it's not meant to be this big spectacle it's just kind of life as is <laughs> right and the only glamour you get really isn't from the cinematography. It's just from the outfits of the girls in the pageant. It's the only spark of like glamour you'll see later. And it really does kind of feel like you're entering this other world. But because they keep the setting of that world so simple, it's just like this janky convention center. Um, but all these little girls and their like princess outfits are walking around. It's like it's just kind of surreal. And it really demonstrates that like this is kind of an uneasy place to be. Uh, you're you're entering like this what the heck kind of realm. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird to see like a grimy Steve Carell with bandages on his wrists, like walking, wading through this like crowd <laughs> of like, you know, waist high beauty queens. <laughs> my favorite, one of my favorite parts is just when the son, Dwayne, and Steve Carell's character, Frank, they're just sitting and the little girls run by them. They're obviously very bored and a little girl runs by them and the brother's like, let's get out of here like and they just leave it's just so uncomfortable like everybody but all it feels insanely uncomfortable <laughs> but and it's even more uncomfortable kind of a tangent but i kind of wanted to bring it up so there are very obviously grown men um not accompanying their um you know a daughter that just kind of watch the yeah. performances we're not going to delve too deep into that but yeah, it, it is uncomfortable. Yeah, they kind of try to play it for laughs, too, which, yeah. Like, specifically, there's this dude in, like, yeah, a denim vest who's got tattoos, close-cropped hair, and a goatee. Looks like he came here on a Harley Davidson. And right before the performances start, he's sitting next to the dad character. He just puts in a couple of earplugs. So he doesn't have to listen. So he can just watch. And then at the end, the joke is that at the end of Olive's routine where she's been dancing around, like, she's literally crawling on her hands and knees, like, roaring during the music. You know, at the very end, this dude just stands up in the crowd, raises his arms, and just goes, woo! Yeah, it's definitely uncomfortable. It's that type of cringe humor, uh, but it's certainly uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. The implications of that are not pleasant. <laughs> and the... The thing is that, like, no one really pays attention to him is, yeah. the, is the part. It's not just that he's there. It's that it's just kind of okay that he is. It's, there. There's another joke, too, going off of that. Um, and I think for me, just to really quickly, for me, the joke isn't offensive, per se. I think what you're getting at with the bigger idea of, like, men are just allowed to be there is what terrifies me. There's a point where Dwayne, you know, the brother, um, he's trying to get to his sister Olive to convince her not to do this. So he literally runs through the hall and asks, like, where's the dressing room? And a little girl's like, are you allowed to be here? And he's like, I don't care. And he goes into the dressing room anyway. Now, obviously, we know as audience members that Dwayne has no ill intent and it's not. And that he's going to see his sister. But there is no... There's... He even walks past someone who's like helping an adult who's helping to coordinate the pageant. And they're just like, are you allowed to be here? And he's like, no. There's... Where's the dressing room? There is definitely blatant commentary on the normalization of child sexuality in these pageants. 
Uh, and I think <laughs> they're uncomfortable, but frankly, it is uncomfortable in real life. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's pretty dang uncomfortable. <laughs> but you know what? What do you ultimately think about this movie? Okay. Be honest. Okay, it's got its charm to it, but I really dislike most of the characters in it. Um, I don't know. I don't find the progression of the plot to be compelling. The reason to watch this film is for a couple of performances and for the commentary. Uh, but pretty much, if you know, if you can fig- watch like the first five, ten minutes of the film, right up until they get on the road, then just fast forward to when they get to the hotel and to the actual thing. And you'll be good. You'll be good. You'll see the best parts of the film. Well, your opinion is valid. I disagree. And I think that I and a a lot of other people really like this movie. And it is one of the most charming films I've ever seen. I really love the performances. Alan Arkin is a delight. Uh, I like that Steve Carell is just kind of there. I understand how that's a negative, but he's just kind of like witnessing the dysfunction all around him while being a part of it as well. Uh, I like black comedies. I like this type of humor where it's kind of cringy. It's the type of humor where it's like, it's so horrible that you can't help but laughing at it. So if you're into that type of thing, I think you'll like this movie. If you don't like that type of thing, and and if you're looking for like a completely uplifting film, you might want to (laughs) pass. Yeah. Well, do you have any closing thoughts, Jeremy? Uh, still not my favorite film of twenty of two thousand six when this came out. That would have to go to Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, Guillermo del Toro. That's a cheap shot. I know it came out on the twenty ninth of December. So it, but it still just barely makes the cut. And just to be fair, that's also one of my favorite movies. So, <laughs> also independent film. This is, yeah, so I think it's very impressive, and this definitely, to me, deserved film of the year at the time. So, I'm going to wrap this up right now. Today, I have with me... Jeremy Rogers. And Jeremy is definitely the pessimist, but we love him anyway. And I am Emily Rubin. Be sure to follow us at ByteBSU on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to keep up to date with all of our content. All of our content is posted to both our website, ByteBSU.com, and to BallStateDaily.com. So be sure to check us out. This has been Emily Rubin signing off. <laughs>